Welcome to Fretnot with me, Rosie Bennett. Fretnot is the podcast that aims to demystify the learning process that we all go through in our lives, work and otherwise. I'll be talking to the heroes and the champions of our field about the lessons that have most defined their lives and their careers and help us to figure out how we can learn from what they've already figured out. Nothing in life is a linear process. So let's get more at ease with the ups and the downs and realise that wherever we are in our journey, we really aren't alone. This podcast is brought to you by Augustine Strings, developer of the original nylon string for guitar and my string of choice. Check them out at augustinestrings.com. In today's episode, I talk to Sam Brown. Now a lutenist, Sam and I first met in the UK guitar circuit as pretentious young teenagers. It's something I'm really glad that we had the chance to talk about. Enjoy. What's the lesson you've learned that's been the most meaningful to you? I, I would say for that one that it might have something to do for me as a musician with learning learning about harmony and sort of simultaneously unlearning my ego <laughs> to a large extent. So as an undergraduate, I was incredibly dismissive of musical harmony you know I, I thought that this was just a kind of numerical abstraction you know I, I got really tired of of just sort of uh, going through lines of music analyzing them breaking them down into their constituent bits it just struck me as being a little bit like taking a clock apart to search for the tick and it didn't have anything to do with what I wanted to to, to communicate at that time but you know having graduated I started to pick up an understanding of harmony from my then partner who was a continuum player and that really started to change my my mind and my approach and how I started to look at music as being something that was more like a craft than an art. And I think that this is an element of, of music that we we have a tendency to overlook. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, you know, it's always worth remembering that our most recent cultural inheritance is romanticism. You know, we're still living essentially in late romanticism and, and everything that that means, you know. So, of course, this is an aesthetic that prioritizes sort of the individual and uh, individual artistic expression and you know usually extremes of that expression you know if we think of the, the sort of archetypal romantic we look at I guess Hector Berlioz this is man who is constantly getting into fights at the Paris Conservatoire you know um, getting making everybody angry and uh, insisting that everyone was doing everything wrong he hated what he called sort of platitudinous and uh, formulaic musical expressions you know this is sort of firebrand attitude and Um, I think that because of this, we have a tendency to think of music as being something, you know, along these lines of something very sort of passionate and intense and individual. We think of the the genius singer-songwriter, the genius composer. And I think that the opposite attitude is equally important. I think that we should learn to treat music as a kind of craft, you know, and, and, and learn our craft. It would be absolute madness for a carpenter to show up to the job and not know what a saw was or different bits of woodwork. But many musicians that I know don't know what this chord sequence is, you know, what this inversion of a chord is. This is crazy. It's a a miracle that we can get away with it. And I feel like um, having sort of made the slow transition towards playing early music and training as a lutenist, I think that this is a skill set that's much more prioritized in that world. I think that there's you know, uh, skills like improvising over ground bass and, and realizing continuum parts, they kind of presuppose 
a kind of harmonic knowledge from from the performer so there's more of a sense that the musician should have a, a, a craftsman's understanding of what they're doing uh, and when we do this of course you know we, we start to put ourselves into the shoes of the composer and the arranger and you know the lyricist even and start taking an active rather than a prescribed role in the music we're creating and I think this is for me this has been a very rewarding journey so I, I'd say that that's been a very significant well certainly a significant lesson that I've learned that I wish I'd learned earlier. <laughs> I think it's quite amazing I'm also going through a similar journey myself with harmony at the moment. <laughs> I also was very dismissive of this stuff I thought that it was pretty much just lessons that they tried to fill your time with that weren't playing your instruments and that also came yeah. from a sort of huge ego mm -hmm. that feeling that dismissing everything is a sign of sort of strength or that you're better than something is really difficult when you're in the early mm -hmm. stages of it <laughs> oh absolutely and it's it's very uh it's refreshing and very uh, reassuring to hear that i'm not the only person who <laughs> that similar kind of journey i think that you know that there's something very legitimate here music is connected to a very, very sort of precious part of ourselves. You know, it's it's a really close form of self-expression. Um, we can't deny that. Um, you know, how we play music reflects some very profound things about our natures and about our personalities. And, you know, we, we should all take a great deal of care over that because it makes playing music something very, very vulnerable, um, especially in the early days. And if, as I was, you know, you were sort of this... Um, highly insecure teenager who relied on music to be part of their self-image, then there's a lot of potential for somebody to kind of batten down the hatches and, and refuse to listen to, to, to any alternatives. But it's it's remarkable how sort of vulnerable music making makes us. You know, I, I, I've had one student who um, worked exclusively in war zones in his apartment. There are pictures of him, you know, surrounded by armed militias in the Democratic Republic of Congo or something. This was his job. He worked in conflict resolution. He was very happy being in a bulletproof vest. And he was more nervous when it came to playing a C major scale for me <laughs> in, the, in the privacy of his own home than being, you know, uh, uh, shot at as part of his job. Because, you know, uh, on the battlefield, all you can lose is your life and not, uh, not your spirit. <laughs> Or your dignity. <laughs> Very true, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? The classical music world is an industry that breeds this kind of attitude. I don't know what it is that happens so early on that we all board everything up inside us to try and um, protect it. Having to sort of overcompensate for the feeling of catching up or the feeling of having a lack of something inside you. Mm, that's, that's a really interesting observation. Certainly, I think that there's an element of, as you say, a sense of overcompensating, a sense of having to, you know, a, a feeling that one is not good enough that propels you, of course, towards the sort of uh, overachieving that uh, is, is in a way called for <laughs> to be a, a, a successful classical musician. Um, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm certain that that doesn't get addressed. Certainly, as we go, move forward in the in the profession, it's very much structured around, I think, competitive rather than collaborative kinds of opportunities. Um, and I think that this uh, influences how we think about ourselves as musicians. You know, we're, certainly I found this as a classical guitarist, particularly that, you know, I was in a room with 20 competitors, you know, 20 people who were all looking for the same uh, opportunities that I was. There would be a limited number and necessarily fame would not strike all of us. So... 
uh, it might be easier if we all kind of at that stage acknowledge that it's it's a bit of a lottery and change that attitude. But I think that there is something very prevalent about the idea of being a kind of world-beating soloist, and that that is the end point that we're all aspiring to, and anything less than that is a, is a failure. Um, and I think that maybe lends itself towards you know, a, a kind of uh, personal hardness. That, and of course, the fact that it can be a very catty industry. <laughs> yes, a lot of highly strong individuals, I guess. And we're working mm. on generations and generations of sort of early childhood trauma. Um, <laughs> so I guess <laughs> it's kind of tricky, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's hard, isn't it? It's really hard. You get these mm. sort of insidious circuits. Um, it happens everywhere. I know it's in the UK, it's a bit like that. I know in different countries, there's sort of different schools. Even the fact that we sort of make it so pretentious by talking about different schools. That, that, that does make sense, yes. Um, it's, it's this very odd mix, of course, of, you know, I was just reflecting, as you said that, on how there is the, you know, when you have a tradition and that that's a very solid thing, as, as in the institution of a, of, a, of a musical tradition, there are two sides to it, of course, because on the one hand, this gives a very sort of strong, solid identity, as you're saying, you know, I trained with that school and play with this orchestra that has this particular sound, this kind of thing. Um, but the flip side of that, of course, is that, well, you know, you're necessarily negating something of yourself in order to partake in that tradition. And, you know, really, it only exists because everyone agrees it exists. So, you know, to what extent is this a, a, a worthy thing? Yeah. But it is interesting what you're saying there. It, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. Certainly, um, there is less of a kind of entrenched tradition, you know, or conservatoire tradition uh, behind the instrument. That isn't to say that there haven't been, you know, sort of very long and very acrimonious pedagogical schools for the instrument. These were debates that uh, uh, Saw, particularly Saw, was getting into fights with everybody about in the middle of the 1800s. But where I think the guitar does kind of stand out on a limb is that apart from some, well, the instrument that we presently play, not the Baroque guitar, um, really apart from kind of 1800s London and Vienna and Paris, the guitar has kind of been outside of the mainstream of um, classical music making. You know, as, as a lutenist, of course, the opposite is true. You know, the, the lute was the central instrument for classical music for, for hundreds of years. And so when you're playing music by Dowland on the lute, then this is music that has equal quality to everything else that was being written at the time. This is as good as Bird and as good as Talis. This is some of the finest stuff that was being written. And this instrument was central to that tradition at that time. Whereas, of course, you know, the guitar's history, you know, really became prevalent as the instrument we know it only in the early 1800s. The, the central instrument at that time was, uh, if you were a soloist, the, the piano, and if you were a composer, the orchestra. Um, you know, these were the central musical institutions, the compositional vehicles for the newest musical thought. And generally what starts to happen is that, you know, uh, composers are, are creating um, new sounds and new ideas. And then maybe a generation later, guitarists take up that same harmonic language, but it's always at one remove because it takes this amount of time to filter down to, to us guitarists. So, you know, you'll get Mozart one generation and then Carulli the next, or um, Schubert one generation and Merz the next. 
um, Chopin, Paraga, you, you know, you see what I mean? The guitar tends to, to lag a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, and, and where this leaves us, of course, is with an instrument that, although it's had a good tradition, is, is kind of has been outside of this more integrated music making. Um, that you you just don't get if a, if you if you're a pianist or a violinist you know of course all of the greatest music has always been written for these instruments there's a much stronger repertory to call on and I think this does leave us feeling as guitarists a little bit sort of you know well, uh, you know outside of engagement you know I think the the other issue that I came across as a student was that as a classical guitarist one is very lonesome you know there are some sort of isolated pieces of chamber music that you can play you know there's that quartet by Haydn and there's any number of Karuli duos for guitar and flute or guitar and violin and you know there's a pretty good repertory by by Ribet uh, actually some really good chamber music but Beyond these very, very sort of specific contexts, you cannot rock up to uh, a, a class full of people with a guitar and automatically be part of the ensemble, you know? Mm-hmm. The, the difference in volume, the difference in timbre is so pronounced that it's very, very hard to integrate with other instruments, you know? I, I used to play duos with uh, pianists, of course, you know, this is always a challenge. Um, you know, volume-wise, mm-hmm. and with my partner, of course, we'd have endless kind of acrimonious debates about closing the lid of the damn harpsichord so I could actually be heard. It's it, it, there's a there's a sense of difficulty here in in actually integrating fully, and I think that these are a couple of the reasons that guitarists tend to kind of conglomerate and kind of clique up quite easily. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a tricky thing, uh, but you can see why it's happened. What do you think that we can do going forward? But it's really difficult to say, honestly. I mean, there is a great deal of good music being written these days. Um, but I think that, I know it sounds a bit strange also, but I think changing the mindset would be very, very helpful. You know, I talked about two ideas earlier about romanticism and, and about harmony and how they're kind of intertwined. And certainly the guitar is really the archetypal romantic instrument quote unquote part of its strength has always been its association with this kind of um world of early 1900s spain you know it's always had a kind of sense of i think steve goss gave a talk didn't he about this about uh, uh the nostalgia that's mm-hmm. inherent in the classical guitar you know there's this real sort of romantic overtone to it you know in a way if you want to see the identity of the instrument you sort of imagine this kind of wavy haired personality you know strumming a guitar on the beach in broad Mediterranean sunlight. I think this is the kind of atmosphere that we're, we're, we're talking about. Um, and I think that this, you know, there's an incentive here to think of ourselves as kind of soloists, artists creating unique, uh, heavily wrought, beautiful things on our own exclusively. And I would say that if we want to be considered as a kind of an equal instrument, well, We'll have to do a lot of arranging and uh, a lot of integrating with other musicians, I guess. (laughs) I think it's always interesting. I felt that growing up, the kind of onus of telling people that you play classical guitar and them always thinking that you meant like classic rock Um, and Mm. being unable to even imagine, even if you would say it's like violin, you know, violin. And they'd say, yeah. And then you say like that, but on guitar and still not be able to really understand what um, what we're doing. It kind of. I think a lot of guitarists suffer from it because it's always um, strange individuals who are brought to this instrument in the first place. 
these are people who kind of when you think though i always think it's like people who ended up here by association started um playing electric or acoustic and then fell into classical or started with a teacher thinking they were going to learn something else and ended up learning classical and never really seemed to get away from it it's a little strange i guess viola maybe suffers from that as well a little bit a lot of classical musicians are um, have a problem with, or not a problem, but <laughs> maybe should have a problem with um, ego. Mm. Um, but I wonder, you said that you yourself have sort of been on this journey of rinsing yourself of your <laughs> of your ego. Um, and what did that look like? What was the impetus? Because it can't have just been harmony or maybe... All right. Know. Yeah. It's <laughs> a really interesting question. I mean, it was definitely like having your soul put through the ringer um for a few decades i don't know i i, I um that's a really interesting question to say um i guess the change would be starting out as this very sort of strong minded and terribly insecure kind of music student and as you keep sort of putting one foot in front of the other uh in the job you realize more and more that there's a very broad umbrella for what works and it does not have to be just your, you know, there, there is no one particular way of doing things. There is never any, never blinkered. There is endless opportunity and scope. And I don't know, I guess it was something I guess I hadn't figured before was that it's a, a sign of uh, a healthy mind to be able to tolerate different possibilities. Uh, and I think that must have been part of it. I guess the more you strip away the um, the sort of self-image that you want to put out consciously or that you're trying to put out consciously, what, you know, the, the, the things that really do matter become clearer. You know, what you actually are enjoying doing, the music you're enjoying making and, and who you're making that with, that kind of thing. Because we often start so young playing, you don't really have an idea of who you are yet at all. And then mm. you sort of get given this, these kind of strict parameters of what other people expect you to be. You build mm. yourself up around that. You know, most musicians are observative rather than really active as young people. You know, you often see classical musicians or people who are studying classical music very young being the kind of person who in a group is the one who's always watching, always listening, always sort of reacting rather than acting on impulse. I guess maybe it has something to do with our teaching as well, because in a way, you infer a lot of the way that you should be through how people treat you when you act a certain way. I think mm. as musicians, we're also quite good at acting. Um, mm. So, you know, and that walking on stage doesn't, you know, in the end, it, it, what's funny, I find more and more now is that you're, people are always talking about how you can be um, authentic or humble, how you can really come across as yourself on stage. And I definitely think the feeling when you're younger and when you first start performing is that you absolutely couldn't be yourself on stage. You really have to be somebody else. <laughs> this uh, you know, <laughs> shiny other version of you that's that's 10 times better, or if not 100 times better, um, <laughs> your real personality. Mm. Um, Talking about going on stage and the sort of onus on presenting a very kind of polished performance, even perhaps before you're ready for it. And it struck me that there were kind of two very interesting details in that uh, issue um, to think about. Um, on the one hand, I was very conscious of this idea that I think was popularized by, by the psychologist Donald Winnicott, the idea of being, of having a true and a false self. 
and I don't know if this is an idea that's that you're familiar with, but it just struck me. Um, you know, so so Winnicott was a, a child psychologist, and his one of his um, fundamental ideas is that children start out being completely true. Uh, to themselves, you know, and this means if you're true, you know, acting truly, you know, you have the freedom to scream, shout, yell, laugh, cry, everything in between. And this is just honestly how you are feeling. And that as you gradually grow up, if you've been given enough of that, that freedom, then you're able to assume uh, what he calls a false self, you know, the identity that must be polished and presented and, you know, that we're externalizing to the world. And that's, that's the, you know, the, the, the ideal is that you're, you're given enough of the true self that you can eventually put up with having to toe the line. But his, you know, what he pointed out is that the issue is when you're made to act before you're ready for it, when you're forced to go on stage and be too polished too soon, then, then some difficulties can crop up. And it, I just wondered if there was an overtone of this in what you were saying. Yeah, definitely. I remember um, having an experience that really, I think, was a good point for me in leading me back to trying to find my own decisions, which was realizing that because I didn't trust myself at all as a player, I'd stopped trusting myself as a person. And so um, even down to the smallest of things, I remember sitting and um, trying to choose a meal from a, a menu and thinking, I don't really know if I like broccoli or not, because I don't know if it's the right thing to like. And that is a little thing. There are plenty of other things that were much bigger than that, that I was making decisions on based on what I thought. But this was a weird one for me because it's so it sort of penetrated into my real existence i didn't really know who i was at all not in a casual oh i don't know what i'm doing actually i knew what i was doing and i knew i had sort of control but it all felt like it hadn't really been real i guess it is really interesting i guess it maybe ties in a little bit with that rush of feelings or a rush of sensations that you can't really understand often at an age where you are put in the situation to um mm. so your brain sort of short circuits on that and you just fill it with something else the brain kind of moves to say okay well that must be what it is i'll put it in this little box and i can understand that um, mm. but yeah i think it's it's very difficult because obviously when you're young you you then grow on what you already have and then your foundations mm. i think if you're maybe not pushed into things but if you encounter things maybe at a very young age that you're not really prepared for or not helped through mm. Um, mm. then you you can often find, as I think a lot of musicians do at sort of early mm. 20s age, that your foundations are actually based on something that you need to completely um, dig up, break apart yeah. and start again, which is terrifying. <laughs> that's <laughs> to say the least, for sure. Um, this, that's, that's really, really fascinating. Um, can definitely relate to that experience. I think that that makes a lot of sense that, you know, that the... Uh, the psychologists who are working in uh, the area of emotional neglect point out that if you're denying yourself um, access to emotional reality, then life has a tendency to ring hollow, um, which is the experience that you were kind of describing to me there. Um, and, you know, it's this notion that, you know, you can be sat looking at something and think, I don't honestly know how I feel about this situation at all. I, I don't feel real. And this can very easily happen if you have been towing the line according to somebody else's expectations, to, to what somebody else demands of you. And I think, as you say, it, it's it, the problem is, is quite literally, I guess, what you would call snobbery. 
Um, now, you know, the, 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 the official definition of a snob is not necessarily somebody who's looking for prestige, but somebody who can't make value judgments and relies on external structures to make them for us, you know? Mm -hmm. So a, a snob in this sense is somebody who's, you know, who doesn't know what a good school looks like. They're just relying on the external world to tell them this is, you know, this is prestigious, you know? And the same, I think, can be very true for sort of classical musicians in a very early age, you know, if, if we're you know, we have this tendency towards, oh, I don't know quite what I'm doing here. I'm not sure how this is making me feel yet. And, you know, as, as a child, well, this is very complex stuff you're doing. You know, this is really complex. You know, how are you expected to know the intricacies of harmony and, and the, you know, the, the, the human emotional reality that this piece is trying to contact? And, you know, on top of that, the demands of performance and ethos, you know, and having to learn all this, these, these you know, these are well outside of a child's remit. So you're having to adhere to external structures very strongly, but very, uh, um, you know, uh, insistently, I guess. For that to be effective at that age, I, I wonder how, how healthy a thing that is. I can see how that would incite uh, an attitude where you think, gosh, I'm not really sure that I know um, myself anymore. What do I really like? What really does matter to me? Well, uh, it's, it's a question we have to constantly ask ourselves, but the sooner we can get into the habit of it, the better, I suppose. Indeed. That's probably a good lesson. That's probably a lesson I'd like to learn. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> I'm going to ask you the second question because otherwise we're never going to stop this phone call. What is a lesson that you would like to impart? Oh gosh, um, that is <laughs> such a difficult question because I mean, you know, obviously as a <laughs> As a teacher, I impart a few lessons over a week, um, and they're usually much more sort of specific. I mean, I'm, I'm really not sure I can answer that fully because, you know, we all need to learn different lessons, I guess, um, at different times. What I can say, I mean, to talk about something absurdly practical, right now I'm getting really fascinated by rhythm and by the importance that it seems to have. And it was one of my dear friends here in, in Bath, who's a, a writer who put me onto this, it's this idea that, you know, rhythm is, is the most, uh, it's the first thing we ever encounter. And it's the most fundamental thing that we are. Breathing, walking, heartbeat, brainwaves. Essentially, when we're communicating, we're, we're getting into rhythm, into physical and, and, and verbal rhythm with somebody else. You know, so as we're, we're having this conversation, you know, if, you're, if I'm talking, you're nodding or vice versa. You know, this is this is a process of getting into rhythm with somebody else. And the psychologist William Condon described this when he, he coined the term entrainment for what's going on here. Um, it's like we're lighthouses, we're giving off a, a, a regular signal to one another that kind of keeps us in rhythm. Uh, and of course, as musicians, that's necessarily what we're doing with, a, with an audience. And what fascinates me about this, though, is that um, obviously, you know, we think of rhythm as being a property of music. Well, actually, it's uh, rhythm isn't something that's intrinsic to the sound. It's our understanding and organizing of that sound. You know, if we were totally arrhythmic animals, if such a thing were possible, we wouldn't be able to pause rhythm in the same way. It wouldn't have the same communicative uh, impact. As this writer friend of mine says, rhythm is what compels us. You know, it's something very physical and very biological. We've, we've all been encountering a lot of kind of three word slogans over the last couple of years. Um, this is something that rhetorists are very aware of, um, is, is the impact of, of, of rhythm in speech. And, and, you know, we've all been hit by that. So I guess I, I'm, I'm interested in, as a, as a musician, as a person, um, the dangers of being too rhythmic and not rhythmic enough. So as, as I'm always telling my students, 
you muck with the rhythm at your peril. You know, you take it away and you play two out of time and no body can understand what you're saying. Um, this is one of my favorite writers, Trey Pratchett, calls on this idea when he writes one of his most sinister characters and he describes him as a man who has no rhythm. He speaks out of rhythm. He moves out of rhythm. He says things like, you know, if you think this is funny, I suggest you laugh now and get it over with. You know, it's, it's really sort of creepy. Uh, it's profoundly discomforting. But on the other hand, I also feel a bit uncomfortable about the prevalence of what I guess you can call what's been called clone time. That is sort of metronomically, electronically perfect time. And this is dangerous because it isn't biologically true to us. You know, we naturally um, speed up and slow down depending on what we're doing. You know, this is um, the Renaissance theorist, uh, Niccolò Vicentino, talks about this idea when he says that the beat should change uh, now slower and now faster. It'll gratify the listeners more than a persistent, changeless beat. And I feel like this is what we encounter a great deal, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a lot of uh, pop music that's being put out there, you know, is, is, is a sense of completely uh, uh, clone time. That's, I, I must admit, I find it a little bit worrying. I find it worrying like when I see adverts in the imperative tense, you know, that, that, that always disquiets me. Being, being told to do something, even if it sounds nice, it's a command, buy this feel better you know it's 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 very insidious i think so you know as with many things i guess what we're looking for is a kind of golden mean you know looking for something that's regular enough to entrain a listener but irregular enough to allow for kind of freshness and variety and i think this is very important it's something that gets overlooked and you could say in a way that that's the the general recipe for for uh things that are pleasant to us as human beings, you know, enough pattern to be reassuring and enough variation to gently challenge us. Rhythm is very difficult when you're teaching. It's very hard mm. to um, sort of genetically modify something that you feel should be organic or that the end product should be organic. Um, it's mm. very, it's one of those things where it almost feels like when you look at it or when you concentrate on it, it stops doing what it should do. Um, and it's really, like yeah, exactly. It's really tricky. And yeah, like you say, it's really core to everything that we do, especially as musicians. You know, we think a lot about who we are on stage or what kind of music we're playing. Um, but mm. I suppose it's really the only thing that um, connects us to an audience. I think it can be difficult for students because, or for anyone who's learning, really, I often find that difficult myself as well. You get told a lot of different mm. things. There's a lot of different narratives happening. Um, I think yeah. mostly, yeah, people are just trying to get you back to that sort of, yeah, the rhythms that we see reflected in nature. Um, if you drop a ping pong ball and you have that sort of mm. natural idea of how much it speeds up, you know, there's, there's these mm. little things that we can sort of relate to, but that are kind of unfortunately non-explainable <laughs> often by <laughs> words. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I find yeah. that really difficult. No, that, that's. I think that's really true. Um, it's it's very hard to describe something that's a, a an autonomic process. You know, like as you say, you know, oh, it feels right because that's how fast a ball, you know, will slow down. Or you, you know, you see what I mean. It's very very difficult to explain this. But of course, you know, we we I guess we get very susceptible to this as musicians. I wonder what was your education like? When did you start playing? Well, I mean, um, I was I was pretty fortunate actually. I Outside of music, I had an entirely relentlessly miserable time of things, but um, as, a, as a guitarist, I was very fortunate. So 
I started having lessons at 13 with um, uh, Sasha Levtov, who runs the, the West Sussex Guitar Club. And, you know, that was, we, we had a very, very good um, rapport, personally, we still do. And, you know, music just became my life, really. Um, it was, you know, kind of all the rest of my life was pretty miserable. So uh, music and the chance to sort of get up on stage and uh, perform and meet other, other guitarists, you know, so Sasha runs the, the guitar club, he runs the Regis School of Music. I was constantly performing and constantly playing with other people. And that just became so much of my, 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 my life, my upbringing, that by the time I got to 18, I couldn't think of anything else I wanted to be doing other than playing playing music you know so that was that was really it for me uh i'm lucky that i that the situation i was in uh made music making just a uh, wholeheartedly a positive thing for me you know regardless of whatever you know personal issues i was dealing with it was always something that i felt i enjoyed so so that was that was how i arrived at uh where i'm at i guess if i can ask then what was happening alongside that what was your relentlessly miserable um, <laughs> <laughs> other um well that's um uh, i don't know if that's a topic for uh for a podcast but personally it was um just a very difficult upbringing and uh broken home and a very very rough uh comp school uh in the south of england so mm. Just a, a, a rather lonesome and uh, not particularly nice uh, time of things. One of the, uh, the, the, the nice things about it is though, it, <laughs> when I think about that, of course, it was a sad uh, experience and something that I, I, I get very, um, you know, it's possible to get very melancholy about. But people misinterpret melancholy, you know. Uh, the, 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 one, the records that we have of Dowland as a person tell us that he was actually an extremely upbeat character and you know they, they say he lived his life in lawful merriment um you know even though he had this you know whatever that means uh, even though he had this persona as being this incredibly dark horse and i think the reason for that is that if you are very acquainted with uh, a lot of personal sorrow then you're all the more inclined to find the good things elsewhere you're more inclined to laugh and want to find fun and make friends and have a good good time of things so in this regard I'm, I'm actually rather grateful proud to come out as a melancholic <laughs> <laughs> of course you talk so well it's actually those little things that you used to write on Facebook that um, inspired me to write anything at all um, oh well yeah. I'm I'm uh, that's that's a really royal compliment. Thrilled that uh, it prompted you to do something so good. That's 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 a real compliment. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I hope that you will write a book. I don't know. Have you written a book? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely read it. I I, I, oh, bless you. Well, I, I don't know what I would ever write it about, honestly. I mean, all I, I, I'm, I'm just a kind of magpie for interesting ideas. That's all. Just write something. I'll definitely buy it. So I'll pre-order it now. Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> You'll, you'll have the first signed copy, I promise, <laughs> when I eventually get, get my arse in gear <laughs> on that. Thank you. Consider this on, on the record uh, pre-order of anything oh. you write in the future. Uh, I will ask you my third question, uh, which is sure. what's a lesson that you're currently working on? Well, so many, <laughs> so many. Uh, um, one 
load of ideas that I'm kind of thinking about at the moment are to do with navigating and music. And this is, you know, I'm going to get very sort of, um, what's the word, uh, speculative here, but I hope you'll bear with me on this idea. So, well, actually, it's, that's, there's one idea about navigation and one idea about ethos I'd love to talk about if I've got time. Um, but uh, so right now I'm reading this fascinating book on, on navigation, sort of on how historically humans have uh, found our way. Have, uh, it's a book by M.R. O'Connor. And one of the interesting findings here is that essentially wayfinding is a kind of storytelling. We, when we remember um, uh, how to find our way, we remember landmarks and the temporal journey between them. We don't kind of visualize this top-down Google Maps. You know, that's not how our, our mind is thinking. You know, that's a separate skill. And the part of the brain that's very involved in this process, which is the hippocampus, is also very important in music making. You know, one study found that um, uh, hippocampal activity, uh, plasticity improved after two semesters at a uh, music college, you know, um, because we're using the same processes when we learn a piece of music, you know, we're, we're involving our, our whole body to do it. You know, it's more like a kind of storytelling, you know, you, you move your right arm here and pluck this string uh, and then make the half bar A shape at this fret. Um, you know, in fact, some of the, the earliest written scores, which uh, are written for the Chinese Gusheng, are written out in exactly this way, you know, it says move your finger to the shoe string and pluck, you know, this kind of detail. It's very sort of, you know, um, procedural, like a list of instructions. Mm -hmm. And uh, Aboriginal culture uh, maps out hundreds of miles of journeys using songs, using using pieces of music, and this is called song lines. And there's another layer to this idea that I'm really interested in exploring. I'm not nearly qualified enough to do it, but if there are any sort of neuroscientists listening to this, please, I beg you, which is the, the, the idea of uh, music as a kind of emotional navigating tool. As I say, I'll get a little bit speculative here. In uh, one of his books, Milan Kundera talks about, uh, he compares the way that a human life develops to a symphonic form. Um, you know, we spend the first bit of our lives acquiring material, and then it's through that material that we perceive the rest of our lives. You know, that's, I think that's a very astute observation. And the 20th century German philosopher Joseph Piper pointed out that music most resembles what he called the dynamism of a human soul. Uh, our innermost natures, like music, are pre-verbal and move through time. Um, so when we listen to a piece of music, we kind of intuit that it is a kind of journey as like the one that we are living as a kind of storytelling. Now, where the navigating bit comes in that I'm interested in is, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're, you know, you're walking down the street and I don't know, a, a particular song, a particular piece of music will, will come to your head and you realize that it reflects something that you've just seen or something that you're feeling and maybe weren't even aware of, you know, you could find, I don't know, you could see a couple of pigeons on a railway line and you suddenly think of, you know, oh, living on a prayer. I don't know. Um, you know, I mean, maybe I'm unique in, in, in that particular interpretation. Um, but our mind is, looking for information that is pertinent to the situation that we're in. 
And very often pieces of music offer us a kind of emotional solution to what to do. So if we're feeling upset about, say, I don't know, somebody cheating on us, we might turn to, you know, hit the road jack or, I don't know, così fan tutti to get through it. So, you know, the music in this sense offers us a way through an emotional roadblock that we seem to have hit. Uh, it can make sense of help us to make sense of where we're at. I think this is a process that we're doing quite unconsciously as musicians, you know, it's one of the, the impulses that we have to make songs to describe where we're at. It's a kind of emotional wayfinding. Um, if what Kandera is saying is true, that we're, that the way we're living our life is kind of analogous to the way that a symphony develops, then we as musicians might have an extra advantage because as you know, there are hundreds of ways to develop a piece of musical material. You know, you can take any phrase and turn it on its head or push it into different keys or make it part of a different phrase, you know. Um, and I speculate that if our mind is training itself to make these maneuvers musically, then we might be able to apply the same sorts of maneuvers to how we're looking at our lives, to how we're, we're storytelling about our own journey. You know, so if we're training our mind to take these these shapes and refigure them and look at them in a different light and put them into different contexts, well, then we can imagine doing the same things with the material of our own lives. We can imagine our same uh, experiences uh, and the way that we're looking at them. But we've got a much bigger palette of psychological maneuvers to make. Um, to be able to move forward more, more competently. So that's, but this is, as I say, very, very speculative. And it's an idea that really needs to be worked out. Um, so in a way, it isn't a lesson that I'm, you know, it's a lesson I'm learning at the moment, but it's actually a lesson I would like somebody else to get involved in teaching me, please. <laughs> <laughs> a call for ideas. Always, please. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, I have to send anything through that anyone sends in. I, I would be really grateful for that. I think music suffers sometimes from being indescribable, sort of uncatchable, I guess, in a way. Mm. It's one of the things that I guess we suffer from as performers because we can't um, slow down time to uh, perfect a certain note or mm. where music lives in time is very tricky we never sort of managed to find the present moment of a of a sound what we do is is impermanence blissfully so in a way i think that's one of the the useful things that a piece of music encourages us to learn you know is that we're, we're having to devote so much to something that is utterly ephemeral it's a fleeting instant but it's a beautiful trait to be able to devote that care to something you know um it, it's uh we're, we're practicing the mindset in a way a bit more than the, than the end result i think personally i love the fact that you know what we do is fleeting and is temporal and is you know is not perfectible i think that one of the issues that as you say as a, as a profession we have is that uh, certainly because of this music is very difficult to commodify i mean the sort of unit value of a piece of music well it's you know a score a cd where is the music happening you know mm -hmm. if you ever want to fox someone in a game of 20 questions you just pick music as your answer i guarantee uh <laughs> you know <laughs> you'll get onto 100, uh, 150 questions uh before anyone guesses you know what you're talking about that's very fortunate you know as i say that that does lead it to being slightly maligned from a um from a, a, a an economic point of view, it's very, very difficult for the current industry to make sense of music along that line without sort of compressing it in various ways. But um, personally, as I say, I, I love the fact that it is something that is 
ephemeral and something that's fleeting and something that's performative. As you say, it's not perfectible. And in a way, that's what creates the excitement, I think, of an actual performance. Um, you know, it's a very, very different experience because there's, it, it's like seeing a tightrope, but there's every possibility that they're going to screw up, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and part of us, I don't know if, if you're like me, but, you know, there's always a slightly malicious part of me that's secretly hoping that they do fall, you know, it's, just, <laughs> it's a cruel mm -hmm. sense of humour. And, you know, but that's part of the charm of it, you know, it's, it's, it's watching somebody who has devoted so much of themselves persevered, you know, in the literal sense, you know, of putting yourself through severity to achieve this point, to achieve this kind of technical command. And seeing anybody do that in any context is very moving. That's why we watch the Olympics. Um, but when you see somebody doing that over uh, in an art form that we intuit has so much kind of emotional uh, depth and requires so much sort of uh, um, uh, empathy, then I think that that's what we find particularly sort of exciting about seeing a, a classical performance. You know, that's that's the line we should really be tarting. There's, it's not the sort of snobbery of it, um, the prestige, yeah. glamour, you know, okay, it is a difficult art form when you have to approach it with respect, but, you know, what we're, what's, ex, what's genuinely exciting about uh, a classical performance is seeing someone go up on stage and devote years of their lives to empathizing with an audience, you know, with a piece of music. That's, that's for me what the excitement is about. I think it ties in really nicely to sort of getting to this point where you can enjoy it really does take a lot of getting rid of your ego because it can be very hard to walk around with a portfolio that's empty, uh, especially with the increasing amount of time that you play an instrument. It's actually when I started writing that I could really only appreciate that for the first time because um, I realized that whether I was drunk, whether I was tired, um, sick, not even in the room, um, I could show a portfolio of my writing and it would be what I had in previous moments of inspiration or epiphany uh, sort of created mm. and carved and worked on and sort of polished until it was in a place where I'd like it and I could even return to that you know, collection of moments of working on something and perfect it further for the future in my own mind. Um, mm. And then realizing that even though I play guitar for what is coming up now, 20 years, that uh, <laughs> being sick or drunk or tired or all those things, um, mm. and I say drunk because this is a thing that occurred to me when I was drunk, because I realized that if I drink <laughs> any alcohol, I I basically can't remember where I am when I play a piece of music. I just, it's like I'm living on a different plane. I have no yeah. idea about all those hours. Um, yeah. And that used to sort of really, it used to really scare me because, yeah, your, put, your portfolio is just empty. Um, mm -hmm. That is kind of, kind of beautiful in a way. You're sort of developing these skills to be able to create it um, sort of only just in that one, right before your very eyes. Saying that, you reminded me that music and magic are only two letters apart. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the <laughs> ultimate wisdom. It's really, really fascinating what you say. I think it's really inspirational. It's really fascinating and hopeful, I think, because a lot of the things that we talked about today can feel quite um, stressful and terrifying, especially mm -hmm. in, their, in their whole. Um, so I think it's really nice to be able to lean into the enjoyment of, of that, to do it with a laugh rather than with a sort of uh, furrowed brow.
Yes, philosophy when truly applied, I guess, should be, you know, sh uh, in fact, no, that's a, that's a quote from one of my favorite books, actually, uh, by a writer, John Crowley, he says, they used to say when something was holy, it made you serious. And I think that uh, something is holy if it makes you laugh. And that's rather a nice, a nice way of looking at it, I think. Altamira is the leading brand of handcrafted traditional guitars, specialising in classical nylon string, historical replica and gypsy jazz guitars. Altamira fosters music education and performance through its foundation that hosts and sponsors international symposiums and competitions in Asia, Europe, North America and Australia. I've recently been lucky enough to be sent an M3 model guitar from Altamira and it is one of the cleanest, easiest to play instruments that I've ever had the chance to have in my collection. They're beautiful instruments, handcrafted with love, and you can tell. These instruments are wonderful. They have models right down from the beginner level, right up until concert instruments that you would be proud to be able to. You can check them out at altamiraguitars.com, and again, I'll put that link in the description box so that you can check it out at your own pace. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week for the next episode of Retinol.